Hello and welcome back to another Silmarillion film podcast. The podcast this week at least that's all about unfriendship. That's right. That's right. <laughs> been looking forward to the unfriendship uh, uh, discussion for a long time. That's, that's just always been a favorite word, you know. I was almost disappointed when Facebook was invented and like un like unfriending or defriending became a thing, right? Because it kind of like made almost like Im impinged on the specialness of that of that uh, of that phrase. But that there's been always been something so evocative to me of that one sentence in the Silmarillion and encountering the unfriendship of the Green Elves. Yes, uh, <laughs> the un unfriendship on Facebook is really uh has uh, trivialized it has it's bit. trivialized it that's that was that was that that, that was the, the the loss that i felt when uh when that happened but um yeah. but that's okay it's still it's still cool because here we are Absolutely. so i'm i'm uh the co-host dave kale and uh joining me as always is uh, a man who i feel like his entire career has been characterized by unfriendship <laughs> really. you think about it but you're all about Corey. Absolutely. <laughs> and and we're joined tonight by someone who's not an unfriend, That's Reed right. Prosser. That's right. One of our amazing writers and creatives and on this uh, head creatives on this project. That's right. That's right. Awesome. So and yeah. It, but joining us in a spirit of unfriendship. <laughs> That's right, because we're all about unfriendship today. Um, yes. Yes, because today we're talking about episode number five of season five. So we have uh, we've we've had the the script outline for uh, episode five. So we're going to be going through that, and we're having uh, we, we've talked about, of course, um, in the previous not the previous session of the podcast, but the previous episode of the season, episode four. Um, we talked about uh, Haleth uh, and the Haladine and uh, their tribulations leading up to of course the uh uh the fight uh and you know in which uh the father and brother of Haleth died in the beginning of her leadership of her people um and uh, we're of course going to be continuing the story of Haleth uh, as they're going to go on through Nandan Gortheb and of course we're going to become introduced uh to the other uh, uh the other houses of of the men as they enter uh and cross over the mountains uh the final latecomers now uh, the uh, the the kind of bigger themes, of course, the big theme is on friendship, right? And we, we're finally going to be looking at sort of big picture. All of the encounters between elves and men have been kind of local encounters in a sense, right? We had Finrod meeting with Beor and the people of Beor and his you know, pretty much unilateral decision to bring them back with him to Nargothrond. So he they they you know they've been kind of sheltered by him. Um, we had the people of Haleth independently, and then their encounter with uh, Karanthir at the end of uh, at the end of that um, episode. Now we're really going to begin digging into for the first time what does the arrival of men mean across Beleriand? Like, what is the sort of the larger view? And especially, of course, we're focusing in on Doriath uh, there in the center. Um, with lots of fun setup uh, of Thingol for interactions with humans to come. Uh, so uh, that's going to be a lot of fun. So um, 
Uh, so th- that's that's our topic for tonight. Uh, looking through that outline, uh, a couple quick announcements before we dig in. Uh, just a reminder: Mythmoot Eight, the World Ahead, is going to be happening June twenty fourth to twenty seventh, uh, and you can go signumuniversity.org slash mythmoot uh, and uh, find more information on that. You can f- learn about our speakers, and you can see our call for papers, uh, which we strongly recommend <clears throat> folks to submit proposals uh, for that. And you can register uh, for one of our two online, uh, uh, for one of our two digital enrollment forms right now. Still just digital so far. Um, our, uh, our, our decision time is coming when we have to decide for sure whether or not we're going to try to do something hybrid or whether we're going to do it all digital. We'll see what happens. Uh, but, uh, uh, but you can submit there anyway. In any case, <laughs> Stephen uh, says, tip, it helps if you submit your paper p- proposal to the correct email address. It is true. You are more likely to get accepted. That is a, that is a cunning pro tip. You are more likely to get accepted if you actually send it to the submission email address. That's, that's very true. But you're, but you're not guaranteed not to get accepted. <laughs> that's right. What if, whatever random person you emailed might, in fact, accept your proposal. <laughs> that, could, that, that could happen. That could happen. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The other thing to remind folks of is that our Signum Clubs program is happening. Our extracurricular programs for kids grades 3 through 12, uh, book club, writing club, language clubs. Uh, and I encourage you to go to signumuniversity.org slash academy to find more information uh, about our clubs. Uh, we're uh, forming sections for our clubs now, which is really fun. Uh, so we're, we're having section, a section of our book club, a section of our creative writing club, and a section of our old English translation club starting up uh, here in April. Uh, and we're, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're ready to start more. So encourage folks to, uh, to look into that. And, of course, the next film film script discussion. They're already up on episode 10 already, which is good. So this is, the, they're the, they're the, the, that's the leading edge, right? As, as you guys, Marie, talk your way through the, 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 you're kind of, you know, brainstorming and working through the ideas there of the scripts, right? And then when you, uh, and then, of course, there's time after that to formulate the, the formal outline and, and uh, possibly draft a script uh, if there's time for that. Um uh, thereafter before we get to it and discuss it. So that's pretty cool. So that's going to be happening on Sunday, March 21st. So that's not this Sunday, but next Sunday, March 21st at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time. <clears throat> and you can uh, you can post in the, uh, the script discussion forum there uh, if you'd like to attend. And, of course, you can post in the script discussion forum if you have ideas or suggestions that you would like them to take into account when they do uh, the script discussion there on Sunday the 21st. So let's get into episode five. So Swift Judgment is the uh, working title of the episode. Um, uh, yeah. I think I like that title. It's a little hard not to use the word unfriendship, though. You know, like, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. <laughs> it's. It'd be good if we could uh, work it in there. Yeah. Uh, a running theme throughout the episode is uh, Gandalf's quote about uh, do not be too eager to deal with death and judgment. 
Right. Uh, that is what's going on with that title. But I'm not really all that good at titles, and I'm the one who came up with that. So if we have a better <laughs> suggestion, I'm, I'm, I'm open to suggestions. <laughs> well, I say we not be too swift in our judgment. Yeah, yeah. We're, they, we're, we, won't, we won't leap into judgment there, definitely. Okay, so our timeline for the episode is uh, first age 390, so we're a few years after the stockade battle. So in the meantime, Halif has been gathering her people, and they've been kind of recovering from the battle, and they're preparing to set out? Or they've kind of been right. wandering? So they've, they've, they've gotten as far as the borders of Doria. Right. So they've gathered and made a decision to move east, Okay. and then they hit an obstacle. And Giant they were instructed sure. to just hang out and wait until Thingol got back to them. Right. So that's kind of how things open with them is they're they're just right. hanging out. Right. And having a having a, a a tribe of humans settled for multiple seasons and possibly years on the outskirts of his land is doubtless going to sweeten Thingol's attitude towards this whole situation. I would have to think. Um, Definitely. Where do we have, because I know we've talked about this before, the depiction of the girdle and such, like, is the girdle right, like, can they access the trees is what I'm wondering here? Like, is the, like, you know, do they, will they have been felling trees or can they not get close enough to the trees to fell them? That's what I'm just kind of trying to picture that there. I mean, they might not want to be in the forest itself, but like, you know, and yet they will have need of wood, right? So, I mean, it'd be at least tempting. Right, the area outside there, the plain, is not exactly covered in trees. Right. So, right. Exactly. Uh, that, and the girdle might not extend to the absolute tree line in all places. Like I'm sure it. The the, the boundaries probably don't match the edge of the forest. Well, that's what I'm thinking. Like I mean, presumably, like I'm going to go ahead and guess that like some of the trees on the edge of the forest where the girdle was originally set up might have dropped some seeds, right? It's possible the forest has grown a little bit, you know, even like, uh, you know, 50 feet or something, you know, over the last, you know, few hundred years. And um, and if so, I doubt Melian's like, you know, stretching out the girdle to match it, right? So, yeah, so it's, it's easy to imagine. Of course, I'm, I'm, you see, of course, where I'm going with this, right? Like where for the, you know, the the, the elves of, of Doriath to come out to be, so have the... And they find, like, you know, this whole stretch of woods on the edge of the girdle clear-cut, right, for them to be building their sheds and, and, and cabins that they've been living in. Like, that's not going to go well, right? I think that's no. going to be... Um, uh, st- I don't think it's strike one, but I don't know what number of strike that's going to be, but I think it's it's uh, it's it's got to count, I think. Um, but uh, anyway, okay. So, sorry, here I am getting ahead of myself. So, so there they are, the Haladin... Uh, now uh, up by Doria. So rather than having separate plot lines, uh, you are having three interwoven plot lines. That's one of the things that I I was finding most interesting about this episode. uh, That we've, because we've been doing a lot of jumping around, right? Like the A plot and the B plot have often been quite separate. Um, Even if, you know, we try to connect them or parallel them in some way, you know, we were doing like a Gondolin plot and, you know, uh, a Nargothron plot. Um, so these are all interlocking, 
all interrelating. Um, so the A plot <clears throat> was Doriath's reaction, uh, reaction to the uh, arrival of men, focusing on Thingol and his attitude towards them. Um, and I'm really, really glad that we're doing that. I think that there's a lot of opportunity here. Of course, there's a lot of risk here. We have to be... Thingol's character is one I think we've got to manage really carefully, right, uh, in, in, in a lot of ways. But anyway... So that so, but we know that he, you know, banned men from coming in. Why does he do that? Like just out of pure xenophobia? What's going on? So, uh, so there's clearly some good opportunity to develop that. Um, the B plot <clears throat> is the unfriendship of the green elves, their reaction to men encroaching on their territory, and this, of course, we talked about this way back when we discussed this plot. Um, we talked about. Uh, Galadriel as the point of view character there. Galadriel and Celeborn still on their honeymoon there in Osirian, uh, and them being the one to, to kind of uh, negotiate, right? The Green Elves not interested in holding discussions with the humans as they come through, um, and Galadriel and Celeborn being a little bit more willing. We know Galadriel does this kind of thing, right? I mean, it, diplomacy, not necessarily saying that, like, making friends and smoothing everything over is her number one goal, but interacting with folks, being a representative to, you know, bridging, bridging that kind of gap, uh, is a thing that she's, um, uh, is a thing that she's, uh, uh, definitely known for. And then the C plot, the people of Haleth going around Doriath. Um, so, and by the way, one of the really interesting things about Nandun Gortheb uh, is we get very few details. Like some, we're to- it's, not, it's not that we're told nothing, but we get very few details about what it's actually like. Like we know it's horrible, right? We know it's very, very difficult and, and, and almost nobody does it and very few people survive it. But it's not like what exactly makes it so horrible is kind of vague in the text. Like, we're not given a lot of detail. Is it, is it mostly physical danger? Like, because there are monsters? Like, there are monsters, right? Is that the problem? Um, is, I mean, is it mostly okay except for the monsters? Or is it... Uh, is there some... But there also are passages which suggest uh, a more sort of uh, magical or sort of spiritual you know, weirdness that messes with people's minds and then Nandun Gortheb. So the challenge of depicting that, and we've we've already been there, right? I mean, we've been there with Arathel, but Arathel's different. She's by herself and she's very strong and she's one of the Noldor. We're going to get the full effect of Nandun Gortheb when we bring the Haladin through, right? And really sort of show the trauma and the difficulty and the suffering involved in going through Nandun Gortheb. So um, that's something I've been looking forward to kind of thinking through more Um, because it just, it strikes me. It's one of those things. It strikes me as a really good, a really good example of those things which are easy to say in prose, right? Um, You know, like, the way was terrible and, you know, they like you can say in a couple sentences, you can, you know, you can evoke this sort of ominous and frightful atmosphere and state the fact that, like, you know, very few of them, you know, uh, were, you know, are, are able to make it through or how hard it was for, for Haleth to bring her people through, uh, as Tolkien says in the Silmarillion. But you don't have to, like, show it, right? When you show it on screen, you've got to, you've got to do something, right? I mean, what do you do? 
just like have them go and you know looking around and there's mist and fog and creepy music or 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 you know how do we how do we handle that you know without making it because of course it's really would be really easy uh for a visual depiction of this to make it campy or dumb or less effective right if you're if you're okay with jokes, you could always go the Princess Bride route, right? Right. You know, yeah, exactly. Little summer home here, exactly. Unusual size. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean the two scenes yeah. that were in my head as I've been talking about that are first that one, um, and then secondly the scene in Monty Python and the Holy Grail right before they meet the knights who say knee, you know, like the 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 creepy forest with the mist when they're like, you know, you get like, you know, Graham Chapman looking around with the big huge eyes right before the knight looms up in front of them, right? Like that's, those are the two scenes that were exactly in my head as I was describing that. And, you know, it's a... We're it, hoping for something a little more serious. Exactly. This, but that's the point is it's, it's, an, it's an easy kind of scene to make fun of. Right. As they do. Like, you know, you can parody that kind of effect relatively easily uh, as they do in The Princess Bride and the Holy Grail. But to actually pull it off is a lot seriously is a lot harder. Uh, So, yeah. Yeah. We'll have to we'll have to see. All right. So let's dig into things here. A plot. Thingol resisting any interaction between men and Doriath. Um, so you start. You chose to start this. And I, I'm using you in the plural. I'm kind of blaming everything on you, Marie. Uh, but you, you guys chose uh, to basically start this plot with a dream by Thingol, a recurring dream, right? So you wanted to put this from the beginning in the context, essentially, of foresight um, by by Thingol, right? Right. The idea is that he's not simply saying that men can't come through because he's xenophobic. Like, right. He is actually xenophobic, <laughs> right, but right. There's, right. A, there's a cause behind this. Mm-hmm. And we showed at the end of season four that he was having troubling dreams associated right. with men entering into Valerian. Right. But we wanted to give the audience at least some understanding of why these dreams would be concerning to him. Right. While also allowing for interpretation that might not mean what he thinks it means. Yes. Yes. I thought that was a really interesting choice. Um, and of course it's, 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 it's especially delightful to people who know the story, right? Um, it's particularly funny that he has a dream about a huge, enormous, horrible wolf who invades Doriath and starts ripping it up. And he's immediately doing an allegorical interpretation of this, right? Okay, so what does the wolf represent? When, of course, the joke is everybody who knows the Silmarillion knows that he's having a foretelling of a literal huge ravening wolf who's going to invade Doriath, which is great. I love that. You know, you know that... that, that it's not just that he's misinterpreting it, right? It's not like that he's doing the allegory wrong. It's just that he assumes it's allegory when it's actually not allegory at all. Yeah. And that's he's, hilarious. He's trying a little too hard. <laughs> he really is. He, but it's perfectly plausible, right? I mean, especially since, I mean, even if he were to have an extremely realistic dream about... Silmaril-infused Karkaroth. It's going to look implausible, right? I mean, it's going it's, mean, to... There's no real reason to suspect that that's, in fact, a realistic dream. Um, so, yeah, I love it. 
I love it. Um, now, the one question that I had, um, which again, and I, it's, it's not that I'm disagreeing or anything, but uh, but it was just a, it, why his his reading seemed a little bit weak, right? I mean, like that that the wolf that he should connect the wolf with humans, like. I believe that the wolves that are, you know, the wolf that is like, it is, it is an allegory of this new race of humans that have come into Beleriand. Like, does he have some kind of justification? I mean, I, I, we can just kind yeah. of see his prejudice showing, I guess, but. No, the idea would be that he's had multiple dreams like this. And mm-hmm. at least in some of the dreams, there would be humans first and then the wolf appears. Right. So his premonition is that as soon as a human enters Doriath, Following on their heels is this giant ravening wolf, right? Which is, of course, true. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the human is going to so, bring the wolf. Yeah, yeah. So the, the connection to the human bringing the wolf should be in the dream somehow. Right. It might not be in this particular one though, because we might just show the wolf. And right. so, when he explains to Melly and I had that dream again, he can explain that it was. He can give a reason for why he thinks it's humans. Okay. That are going to cause okay. So he does have a concrete, like, a, like a context of dream-based reason to connect it with humans. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Okay. Because um, I was going to because without that, I was going to say it seems like a reach on his part, right? I mean, like of all the things that could be depicted in your for in your ominous prophetic dream as a ravening wolf, like humans are got to be a little bit down the list, don't they? I mean, but, but right. Okay. So that, that, uh, that makes it, um, that makes it a little bit, uh, clearer, right? Nick says, Baron enters pursued by wolf, right? Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And Nick, of course, no, you're right. I, Nick was making it explicit in the comments and he's right. I should do that. That's why I found it so funny and so delightful about Tolkien's dislike of allegory right so like that it's another like it's like an inside joke within an inside joke right that tolkien fans know that the inside joke is that the tolkien fans know this is literally karkaroth right so they they see through it and and there's you know fun and kind of amusing dramatic irony but then there's that extra level right the inside joke inside that which is uh real tolkien fans will know that that uh, Thingol's doing it wrong, right? Because he's interpreting it allegorically, and there's your problem, Thingol. Yeah, yeah. No, that's 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 uh, that's good stuff right there. That's classic. Um, okay, so Melian, of course, is going to give him a warning, which he's probably not going to heed. Is that is that the direction we're going? So now, th- my, my my biggest question here with Thingol. Where do we want to position Thingol's character here? Like, what what kind of audience reaction to Thingol are we shooting for in this episode as a whole? Um, because th- to me, this is one of the one of my first biggest questions, right? Because you know we've talked before about how we want to be. It's really easy to let things roll too quickly with Thingol, right? We 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 want ideally, and I th- I'm pretty sure we've said this before, but ideally, when he does his thing with Baron. Right when he pronounces his doom with Baron, it should be kind of shocking. Right, Luthien is shocked. We should feel a little shocked too. I think not like stunned, not like it's a total character reversal on Thingol's part, but we definitely don't want him to look like a bad guy. Right, so go ahead. Right, we wanted the seeds of what's coming to be visible. Yeah, um, this is essentially the last scene. Ooh we get before the Baron and Luthien situation. 
Okay. So, so this this is the last thing we'll see the, we get the before Baron and Lithian. That Dingle would be. Okay. Oh. Yes. Sorry. Okay. My, I realize my connection might be a little slow right now. Yeah. Yeah. We're lagging the, a little um, bit. The gold. Oh, sorry. It's okay. Um, let me fix something there. There we go. Okay. Um, the idea is that Dingle is already kind of sidelining Melian's advice a bit, right. and he is making decisions based on negative emotions, like in this case, fear. Um, so he's doing some of the same things he's going to do in the next season. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. just not as serious yet. Right. Like it's, it's more of a minor step in that direction without it being a complete break. He's not ignoring Melian. Right. He's not right. deciding anything that sounds all that dire. He doesn't hate the men. Right. Right. And are we going to, are we going to do anything to, because I, Thingol already, last season, right? Um, Thingol didn't look bad. I mean, his position is understandable. But he was kind of almost already the bad guy. To some, uh, Not quite the bad guy. Not fully the bad guy last season. But you see what I mean, right? I mean, he was the one who was like, I'm going to blame Goadriel and I'm going to kick out these other people whom we like and, and whom we know to be more innocent than, you know, he's making out. And, you know, like he was. Um, and so we had to be careful last season not to kind of push him too far already. Um, I, I'm thinking, what are we going to do in this episode to make sure that the audience can see his point, can really kind of empathize with him and see his point of view. Cause that, I, I think we would want to, we, we would want to achieve that if we could. Right. So they're seeing it through his point of view. So we're always going right. to be with him in, mm-hmm. in this storyline mm-hmm. and we're starting with his dream. So the audience sees the dream. So as long as the dream is in fact scary, right. His, his foreboding will seem to be based in, on something real and be justified. Right. 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 So, so it's not like he's making this up or coming out of nowhere with it. He has a, a, a real reason for this warning and he's acting on a warning he received. Right? right. So it will seem a little bit more reasonable because we were getting his point of view. The idea was that in season four, his reaction to the truth of the kinslaying was anger. Right. We saw right. his temper come out. Yeah. Yeah. And he he, he, his final reaction was scaled back from his initial reaction. Right. So while his initial reaction was a fit of temper and a little heavy handed, yeah. he, he was able to rein it in a little bit so the audience could kind of feel like he, he didn't act in anger. Right. Here it's fear, not anger. So we're not seeing that quick rush to judgment or right. that quick um, lashing out. We're just mm-hmm. seeing him being like, nope, not having any of this. <laughs> Right. So right. the idea would be if you combine the worst parts of what he did last season and what he does here, what he does in season six should feel like it's something he would do. Right. It, it's it's not going to seem like his character is taking an unaccountable turn. Right. It's yeah. still going to be more than we've seen from him. He will ignore Melian more drastically than he ever has. Right. He will be acting in anger more clearly than he ever has you know this will it'll be a, a step in right. a bad direction <laughs> right um my favorite 
I think my favorite thing about this, though, and this, of course, it gets, you know, we've been thinking off and on, and we're going to be talking more again soon about some of the ways. I mean, it, you know, and to, because to me, one of the really fun things that we get to do throughout this season is to play on the fundamental differences of perspective between humans and elves, right? So much of the conflict, so much of the difficulty that arises between the elves and the humans is simply based on perfectly understandable assumptions that they make about each other, right? Um, Because they have no idea the profundity of the different ways in which they look at the world because of the whole mortality-immortality thing, right? And of course, we've already highlighted that um, literally about mortality with the death problem and Finrod not being able to, uh, uh, to, to, to grasp the whole dying of old age concept um, and his struggles with that. Um, we have, I, you guys have already placed in the outline um, a, another really fun example of this. And I think that we could actually, you guys may have been thinking about this already, but one of my suggestions was going to be that we could kind of play on that a little bit more forcibly, actually. Um, Thingle, so the, the Haleth requests permission to go through the forest, right? You know, to pass through the forest. And they're waiting for a long time. Like, how long? Multiple years they're waiting for the response? That's the thing. This episode is from the Elven viewpoint, so it's not entirely clear how much time is going by at various points in the episode. Right, right. So when we're with the men, it feels like it's been a while. Right. And when we're with the elves, it feels like, oh, no time at all went by. No time at all went and by. That, there should, yeah, there should be that tension Yeah. where the audience is a little confused as to exactly when yeah. all the stuff is happening. Yeah. Can we Which, have a, can we have like a, a a child in the background who every time every time we come back to the scene they're they walk by and they're a little bit older <laughs> um, the entire episode doesn't take more than say a year time span so probably not ah. but yeah the thing is um Hallis nephew is young enough right that he could be older at the end than he was at the beginning right he's already a couple years older than he was in the previous episode, right. in, and that in, might in be a the, clue. The episode, yeah. Time has passed. Yeah, um, yeah, but no, I like that. I mean, I so because here's here's why I'm thinking that because I was it, I was I was led to think of this in thinking about the interaction between Thingol and Melian, right? What if he um he doesn't like, he doesn't brush her off, right? Um, you know, it, so it's not like he just flat disregards her advice to him, right? But like, he. He has a quick impulse, you know, because he is a little impulsive. Thingol's a little impulsive, right? So he has his dream, and he's like, okay, no way. The men are bad news. You know, I have foreseen this. Forget it. I'm saying no. And then she cautions him. She's like, you know, don't let your fear rule you. And so, and so he responds to that. Um, I mean, he does not end up changing his mind, right? He does not end up listening to her and doing something different. But he, he kind of compromises with her. And says, well, okay, I will, I, I will be patient and I will, not, I will do nothing rash. You know, like I will, I, I will make no rash move. So that like, this is a generosity on his part, right? To be, to, 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 to think this through carefully and to give this time to contemplate the dream, right? Which, which means he's going to wait for like a year or two 
before he actually gets back to them because t- to him that's taking time for thought right that is uh, that is that is to be able to have mature judgment and not you know not being too swift uh, to judge about this but of course from Haleth's perspective he's just plain stonewalling them right i mean what they're going to interpret as utter rudeness and even like disregard even in a sense insult right like you, you, you won't even give us an answer Right, you're just gonna you're just gonna walk away and never even respond. Fine, okay. So that's how it's gonna be, right? So what he actually intend, what is a compromise, like a pro-human compromise on his part, is utterly and totally understandably <laughs> misinterpreted uh, by them because and he would absolutely not get it. And like even Malian wouldn't even. I mean, you know, she's gonna be like have some issues with this same thing too. She's not like familiar with human time either right um but uh, anyway no so i'm not saying that she tells him to wait a couple years right but again his but his impulse to wait a couple years or a year or you know m- even just one full year that would be more than long enough for Haleth to decide that this is not working especially if we manage the seasons properly right um did you guys have in mind a season of the year when she makes the request um trying to recall if we discussed that or not because what i'm I'm thinking what i'm thinking is like she arrives in like late summer like getting toward Mm -hmm. beginning to get towards autumn right because her thought is if we can go through the forest um we can at least like be somewhere like in shelter right we'll be able to like shelter from the winter you know with within the forest and within the land of the elves like it you know it's like got to be better, you know, in the, even though we're not going to take handouts and stuff because we're the holiday, but still, um, you know, we can, we, if that's why she wants a straight road, right? Because she wants to, she wants to get through the end of their road before winter comes. Right. But then they wait and now it's too late. So that's why she wait. She, she wouldn't even wait a year under normal circumstances. Right. But if the season is right, she's like, okay, well, we can't go anywhere now. Now we have to winter here. So, of course, we got to cut down all these trees in order to build shelters, in order to survive the winter out here on the plain, because we can't go into the creepy forest because it's a creepy forest that doesn't let us in. Uh, so, uh, but anyway, we can build shelters out here. And now it's spring, right? And she's like, okay, now it's spring, fine. But w- once it gets to, like, midsummer again, she's like, that's it, I'm out. Like, Because if we're going to have to go a longer path, then, you know... I'm not waiting on this any longer. If he takes, even if he said yes within another three months, then where would we be? You know, it's almost winter again. And we'd stand, you know, so forget it. Let's just leave while we still have time to go around. So I'm just thinking about how the seasons could impact, not only explain why she waited so long in the first place, but also help to um, set up the time frame essentially. Right. And her sense of urgency and, and where that's coming from. Yeah. I think that could work. The, um, the parallel storyline is, of course, Galadriel visiting the Green Elves. So, or sorry, the House of Hador people next to the Green Elves. So, as long as that storyline can also work for those seasons, it shouldn't be a problem. Mm-hmm. And I think I think that would be okay because she joins them for a yeah. That should actually work pretty well because the first is the encounter with the. Um, corpse that you had requested. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> this corpse is your fault. <laughs> the corpse is my uh, fault. I, yeah, no, I love that idea. I still love that idea. Uh, yeah, just, 
just just being very clear on and i like i like how they i like how the corpse came out yeah (laughs) so that could be in the fall with the the trees being pretty bare and it could be very um disturbing right yeah and then uh when galadriel visits the community of people who have come back around uh, because they're nomadic it would be maybe in the summertime right so it would be lush and green and there'd be an abundance of food for them to be invited to be part of that so right i think those seasons would match what the story you're trying to tell with Halith okay. there and I think that should all be okay good 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 excellent yeah i mean oh, I, yeah. I like the i was just gonna say i like the time element i think um every opportunity we get to to remind the the audience um just sort of like kind of the the diametric experience of the world that these two different peoples have is is good because it's it's not always going to be like when we're in the thick of thing of like an individual scene or in or an action of a battle or something like those kind of differences seem to fade away right but like 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 stories like this are like a perfect opportunity to show that that time moves slow and fast depending on slow which and of these fa- two exactly uh, on either side of the boundary right you know yeah. on Thingol's side of the boundary he's like okay you know we're um we're, we've been a little bit i've i you know i've i i haven't you know given a knee-jerk response i've thought it through and now it's okay yeah, he's, and he's just taking a beat exactly exactly he's just gonna i'm gonna count to 10 and then i'm gonna and then i'm gonna go talk to him right um whereas on the other side they're like you know, we are literally older than we were, you know, when we came here and asked this question. Uh, like, we're not going to stay here, uh, you know, until we all die of old age. Forget about it. Um, and again, it, it, it's just such a beautiful opportunity, um, Dave, not only, as you say, to really highlight that difference, but also to to, to create this wonderful tension. Uh, it's really great to be able to create tension among the good guys in which nobody's actually wrong right you know because like it's they're both perfectly understandable you know and and it's a really wonderful illustration of the kind the kinds of issues you know because i mean even it comes up like um there's this whole idea right which arises at various points in tolkien's writing right that like it's perilous for mortals to dwell among the elves, right? Like it's like that elves and mortals don't like when they mix. And I don't just mean mix Baron and Luthien mix. I mean, like when they, when they live near each other, you know, like it's um, that it's, it's, there are consequences to that. It does, you know, and, and I think a lot of times if you don't sit back and think through a lot of these things, that's kind of hard to understand. Now, of course I meant, I'm sure that Tolkien meant that to be, rather vague and kind of, you know, mythic as a declaration. Um, But nevertheless, you can, it's the more you kind of think about, you know, what it's like and the kinds of, you know, you can get kind of glimpses of it, right? Like um, uh, Bilbo's comment uh, about how elves seem to like uh, poetry and song better than food or as much as they like food and drink or, or more, right? You can get a glimpse of his own experience of like, living among elves is weird. Like they can just talk for days and forget to eat. And, you know, Bilbo's not down with that. <laughs> right. So, uh, so I mean, there's, there's, um, uh, so yeah, so I do, I do, you know, and, and to, to show this, it also has relevance in the more practical and kind of political world of Beleriand that we're building and discussing in, in season five, of course, uh, because, 
the big question, which we're going to be moving more and more explicitly towards, is how are these two populations going to interact, right? How are they going to settle down? Uh, the main choice, of course, of the, you know, the, the, uh, the, the, the council at Estelot is going to be the big sort of tipping point, really. Because, if, of course, if at the council of Estelot they decide the other way, or any of the other ways, right? If they decide to do anything but ally themselves actively with the elves, the whole situation is going to be... The Haladin are already, like, secessionist over there, right? Um, You would just have the House of Beor as this, like, weird and sort of isolated exception, and the rest of, you know, being this kind of uneasy, you know, independent political state that can't be... And now, you know, you've got to think that the elves, even if they're not afraid of the men, have got to know. Now they have this uncomfortable situation behind them while they're trying to focus on the siege in front of them. It's it's kind of a big deal. Like, the Council of Estelot is a really big deal in that way. And, of course, we'll get to that. That's next time, right? Episode 6 is the Council? No? Uh, 6 is the Escape from Angband and Hador... <sighs> Proving himself. Right, 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 Seven of course. Is Seven is the council. Right, right, we've got to establish Hador, of course, first before we do that. Makes sense. Yeah. Um, anyways, but point is we're getting there, right? We're getting there. And uh, yeah. um, so actually that kind of works really well, actually, to have we sort of establish um, the bigger picture kind of political dilemmas or potential political dilemmas here in this episode. Yes. And at least one character who will be at the council is in this episode. Bereg, right? So. Yes. Yeah. Yes. We're setting up. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. That's great. Um, and then, um, uh, and then we have, and then of course, Hador will come in, and so we'll have Hador kind of going to some extent, sort of against the grain, right? You know, we see the tensions and we see the difficulties and the kind of chasm between the elves and, and men. That's really kind of the emphasis of this episode. And then we'll see, you know, Hador bridging the gap. Uh, in the next episode, and then, of course, bringing that back now to the bigger question, you know, the sort of larger political question uh, uh, in the Council of Estelot. So I like that a lot. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Love the time thing. Love the time thing. Uh, that, uh, that, and, and again, so uh, Stephen was suggesting, um, are we going to have anyone who is... so? There's like uh, his options, right? Thingol's options in response to Haleth's request, right? Are to say yes, uh, to to sort of not let them in. Uh, he said, "Is there is there anyone who's going to be voicing the third option, right? Like that is to believe the humans to be enemies, right? And actively show a more active unfriendship towards the humans. Uh, I mean, I'm not saying like go out and like slaughter them in their sleep, but nor am I suggesting that Thingol is going to acquiesce to this suggestion, but is, is that, is anyone going to even go there? Is anyone going to even raise that possibility? I like Cyros so. or somebody else we don't like? <laughs> well, right, because the person who is reporting back to Thingol about the situation with the Haladine, so the person who has actually met and interacted with the Haladine and then goes and talks to Thingol, is Belek. Is Belek, right. And whatever else Belek is, he's probably not vehemently anti-human, let's no. just kill them all. No, 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 no. You know, obviously Belek's <laughs> not going to do that. Yeah, I mean, again... Yes, but could somebody in the council in right. Menegroth who hasn't... Or, sorry, the court in Menegroth who hasn't actually seen the men, could they yeah. say something? I mean, yeah. sure, sure. There could be a 
like Cyros. I mean, it's not too soon to start establishing that Cyros is a jerk. I mean, we already kind of started that uh, back in the last right. season. So right. don't forget that Cyros the jerk is here uh, in Doriath. Yeah, yeah. It's good to have a it's good to have a whipping boy that we can use for a while uh, in Doriath for <laughs> when we need when, when we need somebody to be really unpleasant. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, Stephen's larger point was, um, if 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 that is said or talked about, right, it would give us the opportunity to have Thingol resisting that. So again, that we see he's not just like irrationally anti-human, right? He's uh, at least a moderate voice compared to like you know what what you know he's he's. Uh, um, and he's not even said no yet. Like, he's not even made his decision. Um, he's just taking time to think. Um, by the way, um, is Beleg... Is, I was going to say, is anyone... But then I think I should just say, is Beleg? Because he's the only one who would obviously be in this role. Is Beleg making any anthropological observations during this period? Does he get to know them at all? Does, or does he even watch them? from a distance do they start filtering back like some actual empirical data about the humans during the course of this time yes so the one scene we see of Bellic reporting to Fingal because presumably there's lots of reports we don't see right but right, the one right. scene that we do see he's not only talking about the Haladine which is not to say hey the Haladine want an answer but to say Hey, the Haladine already left. <laughs> right. So right. No right. worries about that answer. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. Never mind. And then, yeah. Right. I mean, obviously, he would have reported the request earlier. Right. So right. We don't see that scene. Um, and then he's also talking about the people of Estelad, the House of Hador people. Right. In that same conversation. So he is kind of just giving a general report of the state of East Beleriand and the different groups of men and presumably some of his thoughts about that too. Right. They're not all positive. Um, again, with the random corpses thing is a little creepy. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> the Their word peculiar death. doesn't, is not how you endear somebody to Thingol. <laughs> to Thingol. Yeah. <clears throat> I can so. see where that would not go over well. And um, yeah, yeah, no, I, I'm telling you, uh, my love of the corpse subplot has only increased. Like it's, it gets better and better all the time. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, there could be some anthropological style commentary in there. And uh, Beleg would have at least observed the men. Yeah. Do we show that he's taken an interest in them? Like that he's, you know, that. Are we going to have any council scenes? Is it just like Thingol and Melian, like you know, back back room conversation with Thingol and Melian, or do we have any Thingol talking about this with other, you know, counselors? We have, we have at least two scenes where Thingol and Bella can discuss things. Okay. Um, one is, like I said, this general report on the state of East Beleriand that right, right. Bella is delivering. Right. And then towards the end of the episode, there's been reports of issues in West Beleriand. So. Both Thingol and Beleg travel to visit the March Wardens there to kind of see what's going on. Right. And right. so they're just speaking with each other a little bit more candidly, I suppose. Right. Right. Because because he's not like sitting in council and hearing from lots of people. Right. It's just him and right. Beleg. Yeah. 
Yeah. Right. Yeah. By the way, I really peeking ahead to that moment. I really liked getting Thingol out of Doriath. That was really cool. That was like a breath of fresh air. Like to see Thingol outside of Menegroth. I said outside of Doriath. I meant outside of Menegroth. Um, get him out in the sunshine. Yeah, we, 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 yeah, we do stick him in his caves and leave him there pretty much all the time. Well, so does so. Tolkien. I mean, like how? Yeah. Like once he gets there, do we ever see him outside? I mean, only at the hunt of the wolf is the only time I can think of that he well, leaves. There's also the incident with Bulldog. Well, yes, yes, in and. Right. That one time that's implied in the Lay of Lathian, right? But yeah, I mean, we have to go that far to try to find another place where he left, where he left, I mean, where he left home. Um, uh, You know, Thingol was like isolating before it was cool. Um, But but yeah, no, anyway, the point is there's no reason to think that he actually has been like living his whole life underground and has never seen the sun for centuries. Uh, so I, that's, that, that's why I like that. You know, like it, it, it's kind of, it, it's, it's a nice reminder of, Hey, like um, he's like the Lord of this realm, like the whole realm, not just, you know, Menegroth, uh, not just his court there in Menegroth. And I know we had him out already in the, um, the battles, you know, with the, you know, the green elves and the orcs and stuff back in season was that three? That was season three? Three. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But that was ages ago. So, I mean, it's good to get him outside again. He, he did attend Galadriel's wedding in Nargothrond at the end of season four. Right. And That's right. that was a big deal because we weren't really sure we were allowed to take him out of Doriath for that. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> but we did anyway. Right. An actual um, field trip. That's, that's exciting. Yeah. That was a field trip that involved visiting other people who are not from Doriath. So right. we're done with that now. He's He's pretty much stuck with people in Doria, yep. but he's at least outside of his cave. Right. No, that's good. As I said, I, I really I, I just, it was a small thing but for some reason it really struck me when I was reading the outline. I was like, wow hey, look, there we go. Thingol in full sunlight. That's fun. It's good to good to remind ourselves, Thingol's a person too. Exactly. Thingol's a person too. Likes to go on outings every now and again. Um Good. Okay, so let's talk about Goadriel's ambassadorial visits to Thingol. So, um, is that when he makes his judgment? When, like, so it's after he hears Goadriel's. So, well, hang on. Back up a step. Thingol and Goadriel, how are things there? Like, still a little tense, a little awkward? Right. She doesn't live there anymore, and there's a reason for this. Because <laughs> yeah, it was a little uncomfortable, right? I mean, it, it got almost really uncomfortable, and then he kind of took that back. But, but yeah, a nice long honeymoon away seemed like just a thing at that time, and it's her first trip back since then. And 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 she's here defending people and <laughs> kill each other. <laughs> yes. Yes, I'm here to take a pro kinslaying stance, but don't take it the wrong way. Yeah, no, I, I it's it's so but that's what I wanted to try to gauge. Like how how frosty are we going to have Thingol be t- towards her basically? I mean, I would think not much, right? We can show that he's like definitely forgiven her. Like that the the more active tension of because I mean the tension went pretty close to the end. I mean, we got resolution, right? We had reconciliation at the wedding in the end, but I mean, it was, 
it was a one episode reconciliation after all after all season of building tension so uh you know some indication that the reconciliation did take right is you know i, I mean i clearly yeah. we should yeah. remember the tension but but i wouldn't want to have him still being you know yeah. too the frosty. idea is that he's receiving her cordially and yeah. certainly not acting like he doesn't know her or anything right. you know he's having a good friendly enough conversation with her but there's at least a little bit of distance there mm-hmm. they're not best friends yeah and yeah. then she after meeting with Fingal, has conversations with both melian and luthien and those conversations should be much warmer and right. much more personable. Right. And so if at first we're like, oh, Thingol seems to be getting along fine with Galadriel. Doesn't seem to be any problems here. And then we see what the actual friendly greetings look like. Right. Be like, oh, actually, no. Thingol <laughs> was quite distant. <laughs> right. You know? So it's, it's not, he's not being actively frosty. but Right. But neither is he being actively friendly uh, or, right. or, or warm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Distinct distinctly room temperature response from Thingol to Galadriel. Get it. Yeah, no, that's good. I, I think, I think, I think that's a good place to be. Um, I think it's a good place to be. That's, that's it. I'd say with uh, Thingol in general, that's a good place to be. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. But in response so now, but then tell me about how we, how it goes on. Right. So she gives her report and he's alarmed by her report about the corpses and such. And so it's in response to her report that he makes his declaration? Correct. So he was planning to not let the Haladine through, but they stopped asking before he got around to telling them anything. So there was no need for a declaration at that time. Here, Galadriel is kind of petitioning for a little bit more elf-human cooperation and friendship. Right, and he's saying no to that, and in, in that is the time at which he's going to say, "Men are not going to enter Doria ever." Right, and we put the we put the declaration there mm-hmm. because we wanted it to be between Thingol and Galadriel, who are characters right. we know and care about, right? Rather than Thingol declaring something to his court right. with no men in sight and having no one there to react and be like, "Oh no, don't do it, Thingol." Whereas right. if the court's just like, "Yep, okay, that's how it is." It wouldn't have any weight to it. Right, right. Whereas right. if Galadriel's actively arguing for something different, the ban will feel like he said no to her. Right, right. Yep, that makes sense. That makes sense. And we do have in Galadriel at least a sort of advocate for the other position. Yes. For the other side. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So it's it's a more dynamic interaction than just Bella giving his report. Right. Right. And, right. and so that's why it's at that point in the episode. And it, it's given the audience a chance to maybe hope for a different outcome. Right. Maybe to be like, oh, well, he had that dream and he didn't like men, but he realized that his delay scared the men away. Maybe he'll say something different this time now that Galadriel's right. there to be advocate. But right. no. <laughs> and, and so that's it, it just felt like that was where the tension of that decision should lie. I like that. Now, how are we going to do the declaration? Because when he makes the declaration in the Silmarillion, it, it's, uh, so we get the response from Melian, right? Melian gets the foresight that, uh, you know, a mortal man shall indeed, you know, pass the girdle. Um, but, um, 
is he going to deliver it as simply like a, I'm just trying to think of the context. He's going to just, so this is going to be a purely like political slash judicial judgment on his part, right? Him just saying, um, I, you know, based upon what I have heard, I conclude that these humans are dangerous and not to mention, you know, my scary dreams, uh, have concluded that humans are dangerous. And so I decree that humans are, or is it going to be more along the lines of like, um, a sort of inspiration or almost like a foretelling, you know, that like, you know, I say to you, no human shall, you know, uh, cross. Cause I mean, the context of those things is like, basically is, is it going to be, I have considered all of these options and here is my reasoned response to all of these things. Or is it going to sound more impulsive, which could have authority, right? I mean, again, foretelling is a thing, right? So, you know, he could try to pass it off that way, even convince himself that, you know, he knows what is best, right? He has intuited what is the best thing for Doriath and declared it. Um, what do we think about that? I'm trying to think of how reasonable or unreasonable the audience should think he is at this moment in time. Right, right. And partly Galadriel saying there's a reason they have capital punishment isn't really that convincing. So Thingol right. being dismissive of the people in Astolad feels reasonable enough. Right. Like, would be a stretch to accept them however in the midst of that conversation galadriel brings up the men who are currently living in nargothrond with finrod right saying it's been a good relationship finrod has no complaints like these people are good people essentially mm -hmm. and finrod is someone who's on pretty good terms with thingle yes and he's still dismissive mm-hmm I'm saying like, no, we're not talking about those people. And even so right. they're not allowed in here either. Right. So when he gets to that part of it, and that's where he gives his declaration after he's already dismissed the house of Baor as well. Right. It seems like the audience should be expecting a forceful, emphatic declaration, but not necessarily a well-reasoned one. Right. Right. Yeah, I agree. It's hard un under all of those circumstances, especially with the House of Baor and especially, especially with the way that we've changed the House of Baor with their residence in Nargothrond. It's hard to make it a purely rational conclusion on his part because it's not super rational. I mean, it's just kind of however we tried to slice it. I don't think we could make it that way, really. Um, so it seems to me that something like, you know, Nick was suggesting you know, that it could be kind of both like it could start off in the vein of like a, you know, a prophetic declaration, like a, you know, a, an insight, um, which needn't be wrong, by the way, right? You know, I mean, uh, there's lots of prophetic things he could say about humans and the destruction that they will bring, which could be perfectly true, <laughs> right? Um, so, I mean, like, what if even he had some kind of, well, it doesn't seem very relevant to him. I was thinking of some kind of, like, vague foretelling of, like, you know, even, like, the treachery of Oldor and, and, and all that. You know, like, some, some, some glimpse, right, of the fact that through humans, great suffering is going to be brought. Like, he's not... If he said something like that, he wouldn't be wrong, right? Um, 
or he, he, he could say something like that in terms of the um, capital punishment issue. Like, if they're willing to kill each other, how can we trust what they would do to us or how right. they would treat us? Which would point towards Aldar without actually. And he could have, or it, it, it doesn't have to be a specific, a specific insight of Uldor doesn't make sense because Uldor's betrayal is really distant from Thingol himself. So it would seem weird for a foretelling of a remote and irrelevant to him event like that to come upon him. But um, it just doesn't seem to fit the pattern of foretellings that we see in Tolkien. So I would be, but, but again, a more, not a prophecy of an event, but like an insight into a trend basically like for instance he could have the perfectly true and valid prophetic insight that many of that like the these men have served you know my heart tells me that these men have you know uh the, these men have served morgoth before and will serve him again uh and you know and therefore you know we would be rash to trust them Totally, totally fair. Like, totally true. Um, uh, and, but of course, wrong as regards the Adain, right? Wrong as regards the, 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 the kingdom, but not wrong as regards uh, humans entirely. Um, so it's, and, and again, you know, we'll see that, we'll see both sides, right? We'll see, we'll, we will go on to show how his, um, um, uh, his uh, his th- the truth of what he says, but also, you know, how and the ways in which he was wrong and and uh, and was doing wrong to even to the people like to the um, those they who shall be the house of Hador. We need to figure out something to call them. I'm sick of calling them the people who will become the house of Hador. I've been calling them the people of Estelad, if that helps. Estelad, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good. Or we could call them the, what would they be? The Estelodians? Uh, the Estelodians. Uh, the Estelodians? The Estolads? I don't know, but... Um... <laughs> it, sounds, it, it sounds, it also sounds, you know, dangerously close to Este Lauder. <laughs> it's true, yeah, it's true, yeah, it makes, yeah, exactly. There's a, there could be a, 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 a we, we could, we, we could get into copyright infringement if we're not careful there, so I suppose, but... Um, Yes. So I got a I got a question. What if um I mean what if Thingol's sort of his premonition really has more to do with like with like events as they will indeed eventually unfold. Mm-hmm. And so maybe it's it's it has less to do specific with specific like treachery or destruction but just sort of like if you look at if you look at like what Thingol is trying to achieve particularly working with Melian with the um with the girl and stuff it's it's all about like basically keeping the it's like the uh, it's you know it's one of these ultimate elven acts of preservation like let's just like let's wall off doriath from the rest mm-hmm. of the world mm-hmm. so that we can kind of just keep things the same and be protected and like and he kind of realizes that that the arrival of people is is a is like sort of a wave of change of like you know sort of inevitable change coming along and that letting them into doriath will 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 allow change to come mm-hmm. uh and and undo everything that he's doing which is i mean basically exactly what happens once baron arrives it starts this like chain of events that leads to everything changing including eventual destruction yeah you're um, right you're, you're right dave it would be more powerful if his premonition 
were in fact an accurate premonition about Baron's coming. Um, yeah. Even if, again, sort of misapplied by him and even misunderstood by him. Um, yeah. Uh, I mean, we've already seen him re- misinterpreting stuff, right? So that would, we're, we, yeah. we're, we're prepared for that. Um, but yes, that, um, that change, of course, especially since change is our theme, I really like that, um, uh, you know, for the season, that we, it, it helps to emphasize several things, right? One, the perfectly true and legitimate fact that the elves in general are anti-change and the humans in general like change is the air that they breathe, right? So there's definitely... Um, and so, again, he's not wrong that if humans... When humans enter into uh, the elvish realms, change comes along with them. It's part of what happens there. You're you're definitely wrecking your static elvish situation that you're trying to create or maintain. Um, but, of course... As you say, Dave, of course, that with uh, with Doriath in particular and with Baron in particular, there's going to be some major change that happens in Doriath uh, as a direct consequence of the arrival of men. So that's not wrong. Um, it's even, I mean, he could even have... Remember, um, oh, what's the word? What's the word about what uh, what happens to him? Like his grief when Luthien dies, um, Luthien returns to him and heals the what's the word? It's not Twilight. It's not um, the something of Thingol. Uh, uh, oh, what is that? I. Oh. It was something. It was. It wasn't grief, but it was age. I think it was like. Yeah, yeah. There's like a metaphorical word that he uses. It's like, what is it? Um, all right people in the comments yeah nope. um, winter is it winter oh Joy? i think the winter of thing right. it's winter yeah I think that sounds right. that sounds close i'm thinking like frost uh no it's not twilight it's uh, the winter of thingle yeah yeah anyway d- what that's what i'm thinking dave what if what if what if he has a he, he could even have a vision of that right he could even have a vision yes. of himself locked in in grief Right. And the whole yeah. court mourning um, and know that something and know with like deep and absolute prophetic certainty that this grief has come when human, you know, if you th- this is the grief that will come if humans come into Doria um, because he's not wrong. He's not wrong. Um, is it winter? Uh, Do you find uh, it, Marie? It is. It is it's winter. winter. Great. Yes. Thank you, Julie. Appreciate it. Nice work, Julie. Yeah. And it just says the winter of Thingle, not like his grief or anything. Yes, the winter of Thingle. Yeah. It's just just the metaphorical phrase. That's what I was recalling. Um, So, yeah, if he has some kind of glimpse of that, right, his own grief and his own own winter, right, the winter of Thingle, um, the winter of the court, like he sees this, you know, kind of sees and senses this, you know, and again, and knows, can know with absolute and perfectly justified conviction that this is a consequence. This is what's going to happen if humans come to Doriath. Um, the other level... I think also... Go ahead, go ahead. I, I, I was going to say, I, I think, you know, this angle also uh, sort of achieves the dual goal of making making his behavior and decision-making, like, understandable yes. uh, and even relatable, but also, like, but also clearly wrong. 
Right. Right. Also clearly wrong. And it even sets things up for next season, right? I mean, when he... He's not just a xenophobe and or an overprotective father when he does what he does with Baron. Instead, he's... um, What's his name? Laius, Oedipus's dad, right? You know, trying to prevent the horrible thing that he knows is going to happen. And now a human is here, right? And so he's like, well, um, okay, maybe if I send him away and make sure he dies, I can prevent it from happening. And of course, by doing this, he's making sure that the thing happens. Um, and recapitulating that kind of Oedipus cycle, you know, of foretelling and, and fulfillment of prophecy. I mean, that's... Um, that seems to me to fit perfectly congenially in Tolkien's world. So, um, I mean, we, we see that kind of thing, like, like the Witch King, you know, for instance, and his triumphing. Uh, I know it's Macbethian, but Shakespeare didn't make that up either. <laughs> so uh, anyway, uh, the um, so, yeah, I, I like that, Dave. I think that so it, we could get a bunch of payoff, I think, from that kind of that kind of insight. So. Having said all this, Maria, I'm not necessarily saying that all of this needn't even necessarily be spelled out really perfectly. All you know, a lot of what we were just suggesting could be folded into just a few lines that he delivers at the beginning, like as he's rolling up to his uh, to his final pronouncement, right? And the other thing that I kind of like about this is that there's a risk. Um, there is a risk of him. I'm thinking about Goadriel and Goadriel's reaction. Right. Um, If she comes in and they're like, okay, but, you know, not BFFs clearly. And then she gives her report and she's actively advocating for, like, give men a chance. And his response is not only no, but heck no. Um, Like, it kind of sounds like um, potentially like a, 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 a like sharp plateau of tension between the two of them, which might be more than we want really at that point what what i'm saying is if he ramps up to it in this way she's gonna she's gonna respect that right she's gonna i mean one of the things about foretellings in tolkien is that they they come they come upon people right they come upon people sort of spontaneously but the other thing about foretellings is that otherwise people who hear them know that they're foretellings and respect them right um foretellings are not generally greeted with skepticism not among, you know, the wise, right? Um, so Galadriel's going to hear him, and she's going to be like, well, okay. Um, you know, she might still disagree with him, but she's going she's gonna to respect the foretelling, right? Right. She doesn't have mm-hmm. to disagree with him to his face. Right, right. And she can just ask questions when she has conversations with Melian and Luthien. Right, right. I'm like, wait, really? Are you... Are you guys sure? Does this sound right to you? Kind of right, <laughs> right, yeah, right, right. Um, and at the end of the day, she's gonna audition thing. Right. Okay. Hang on a but second. I we're we're, we're losing you a little bit. She's gonna take his message back. Right. to the humans. Right. So, and the message is, oh, sorry. But yeah, her, her, her message is going to be based on what Thingol says. So she does not disagree with him. So she does accept. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that makes that easier so that we, we don't have her going back and just being like, 
Man, I tried, but like that guy is irrational and there's no talking to him. So, you know, what are we supposed to do? Like that, that's not her perspective. She can still disagree with him. She can still think he's wrong, right? Or think that this is the wrong move or the wrong direction to go. But she can, she can still kind of, we don't have to have her just like rolling her eye and face palming, you know, after, after she leaves, <laughs> right? Um, <laughs> she's, she'd be like, okay, well, you know. All right, so guys, Doriath is a no-go, but uh, let's continue trying to move forward here, right? Um, it, it, it puts her in an easier position to do that, too. So that, I think that that's another, um, um, I think that that's another advantage of that kind of a, that kind of a foretelling. I like that a lot, Dave. I think that's a great suggestion. Um, now, the final step in Thingol's trajectory in this episode, though, is when he meets Haleth again right on the west side of Nandangorthab when they come out, right? And this is on his road trip, right, with Beleg when he's off at the marches, uh, and they're investigating problems that they, their own march wardens have had, right? Um, you know, they're going to a place which is dangerous by Doriath march warden standards, and there they find the Haladin emerging and looking around in that dangerous place and saying, whew, oh, it's nice to be somewhere nice and friendly like this by comparison to where we just came, <laughs> right? Uh, <laughs> yeah, they, they come out and they're like, we're thinking of building a summer home here, right? So, um, yeah, I think that's really cool. And so, so his reaction, he's, he's shocked, he's stunned, he's, is he disturbed? Is he... Is he, is he Beleg is admirers. We, we know that Beleg is going to really admire them, right? Um, so Beleg is going to be is going to be he's going to want to be friends with Haleth from here on out because he uh, thinks she's really cool, right, and really admires them. What's the difference between Beleg, Beleg's? I, I would think unequivocally positive and admiring response and Thingol's. Are we going to have any kind of distinction there? Yes. Um, they don't actually speak to another until the next episode. So right. we'll end this episode with Thingol seeing them come out right. of the woods. Right. Um, so we don't get his full reaction other than what he says to Bellic. But yeah, he's more just surprised. Like, oh, right. whoa. Whoa. Yeah. Where did these people come from? And, right. Yeah. Bellic's the one who takes it that step further and is impressed. Right. And We'll see that in the next episode when Beleg ends up being kind of the go-between right. for Haleth and Thingol because Haleth and Thingol will meet, but they are both way too proud to actually work anything out. <laughs> yes, I can, uh, that's going to be a really fun meeting, Thingol and Haleth. That's uh, that is fantastic. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, that is um, that is going to be f- all kinds of fun. Yeah. Yeah. She- she keeps running into these really obnoxiously tall, proud elf yeah, lords yeah. and wanting nothing to do with them. She's really meeting the cream <laughs> but, of the crop, isn't she? Right? First Carinthir and then Thingol? Yeah. It's too bad she didn't meet Aeol, uh, uh, you know, on the way. <laughs> right. Do the trifecta. <laughs> right. You're right. The, the low lights of elven character uh, in Boerian. Right. Yeah. Yeah, wow. There's there's a reason the House of Baylor was all like, let's go live with Finrod. <laughs> right, right, exactly. And Haleth is no thank you. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, no, it is. It is but uh, Beleg will be an exception. Beleg, Beleg will, will be an exception. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so, 
Did you have dialogue in mind, like a line in mind for what he says to Beleg Thingle when he like? Because I don't have a line exactly, but I'm kind of I was thinking about like how to characterize his response, right? Like what? And and my my first thought is his thought would not be I can't believe they did that, but rather how did they get here? Like something must like he must like he would assume. Right. They, they, obviously, they didn't walk through Nenda. But how else? Like, how did they get here? What happened? Like, somebody must have helped them or transported them or like something absolutely crazy must have happened. Because I would think that he would probably dismiss out of hand the possibility that they had actually walked through Nenda to get here. Um, Belling's going to have to tell him that this is the, these are the same people, right? So, right. So, like the conversation. Not in exactly these words goes something like Belleg looks out and says like, "Holy cow, those are the people that like you know you know." Thingle's like, "Who are those people?" And Belleg's like, "Holy cow, those are the people who are over on the western side." And Thingle's like, "How on earth did they get here? How does that even make sense? Right? How is that even possible?" And then Bell would be like, "I have no idea," you know, or or you know he could say perhaps something a little bit more sympathetic like you know i can't even imagine you know what uh you know what what must have happened or what they must have gone through or something like that um indicating that his imagination is more quickly yes more quickly than thingles going to the i um uh i can imagine not only their courage but their suffering right uh between since the last time I saw them, um, whereas that that's not Thingol's first thought. It, I'm not saying we make him suspicious or or you know hostile or anything, but just, um, yeah, that doesn't occur to him. He's uh he's more concerned with the how and less concerned right. with the um, uh, you know accepting sort of what what what's in front of his eyes, what the you know like what they must have gone through. Right. Right. Yeah. Because, I mean, like if there's been if there was some kind of, you know, chicanery up there right on the borders of his realm, um, you know, like what? uh, Yeah. Did they get through the girdle, you know, and go inside, you know, through the north part of the forest? Like, is that what you know what happened? Yeah, there's got to be something. And it's going to be alarming to him. But yeah. okay, Awesome. Well, that was a lot of stuff about Thingol, but that was really cool. Um, let's think about the B-plot. Let's go back to Galadriel now. Run it back a little bit. And let's talk about corpses hanging in trees. So, um, the Green Elves are complaining. Now, their complaint, the, the, the uh, future Estoladians are... Um, they're nomadic peoples, right? They're nomadic herdsmen, we decided, right? Was that what we decided? Okay. That's what we decided. I hope you're cool with that. That sounds good. I'm cool with that. No, we had, we had, uh, we had homesteaders, right? And we had, uh, well, pioneers, basically, with the House of Bayor. We didn't, you know. Uh, uh, so, yeah, no, it, nomadic herders. That works for me. Um, what do the Green Elves complain about exactly? The felling of because I mean if they're if they're nomadic they're not going to be like clear cutting land and building houses right mm-hmm. right so there's kind of a threefold complaint um, the first is that one of the types of animals they herd are 
hogs. And they've released their hogs into the forests of Assyrian on the other side of the river from where they're encamped. Right. And um, which is convenient. So pigs are kind of destructive to right. the territory. Right. And right. the green elves are not okay with random pigs showing up in their land. Right. Um, so that's that's the first complaint. The second complaint is um, corpse hanging in the tree. We corpse. don't like this. Corpse, <laughs> Why is this yes. on our side of the river? <laughs> yes. We didn't want anything to do with that. And then, yeah, cutting down trees because they are nomadic. But when they move into this area for whatever time of year they're hanging out down here, then they're going to cut firewood and such from yeah. the forest. Yeah. So, so while they're there, they, they cause destruction too. And then they move on. So, so just that three prong, like these people are terrible and we don't want them here. <laughs> right. Right. Is basically what the green elves. Absolutely. It makes all kinds of sense. Um, so, um, here's what your outline here's let me tell you right away about the way that your outline made me love the hanging corpse even more i love the way in which the hanging corpse establishes this motif that runs through like all the plots it's really cool um well less so the c plot but at least the a and b plot right because like on the one hand you've got the 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 kind of um the kind of interplay or the kind of the kind of mirroring almost Right of the judicial situation among the humans, which led to the capital punishment, right, um, is the thing which is leading to Thingol's judicial declaration against the humans, right? Um, and of course, setting up in particular Thingol deliberately dooming to death a human, the first human he's ever going to meet in his court. Uh, right, uh, Baron. So the way that it kind of, you know, th this whole like, oh yes, like, you know, sentencing, you know, uh, d deeming a doom which declares, which like sends people to death is horrible and barbaric. Isn't that awful? Like these people must be terrible. I love the way that it anticipates the Baron situation. And again, um, the fact that, and I don't know if Galadriel would go here because it's only kind of after the fact that's going to become clear. Like after he makes his judicial proclamation, you know, um, is when the parallel I think is going to become more clear. But I wonder if Galadriel doesn't see it, right? If Galadriel does not perceive the fact that it is that same judicial impulse, that there are parallels, in fact, between the decisions that led the humans to hang that person and the and the things that are leading Thingol to make the judgment, the anti-human judgment that he is. Um, so I, I just, I, I like the way in which the hanging corpse almost, not only it literally, you know, it's going to be discussed and is going to be one of the motivations for Thingol to make his decision. Um, I like the way that it kind of thematically sort of ties them together as well. This is, a, you know, a, a judicial proclamations are, are one of the, like, motifs of the whole episode in that way. So... I like that. I, I, I think it, I think it's I think it's really good. 
but and of course, just another wonderful opportunity. Uh, and this that I didn't foresee when we had talked about this originally. But the second point I did foresee. Uh, this is one of the things that we talked about before about the the wonderful ways in which it also provides another great opportunity for misunderstanding of two groups of people, neither of whom is really in the wrong. Right. I mean, like the whole kinslaying thing, it looks bad. It looks really bad um, from an elvish point of view. They are completely justified um, from their own context in being extremely dubious uh, of anyone who, I mean, that's, um, you know, uh, it's, it's orc work. Uh, some would call that, right? That kind of, uh, that kind of carrying on. Um, and yet, from the human standpoint, uh, the, it's, you know, it's totally different on the human side, and I like that. So. It is. It's just, it, it can be as necessary as you want it to be but saying, no, 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 don't worry. They only have capital punishment because they need it. Right. It doesn't really endear no, them to the other. it doesn't make it better. better. Yeah, exactly. No, you have to understand. Yeah, sometimes people in their community kill each other or commit other horrible crimes and really That's doesn't right. know what they can do about it. That's right. In order not, to prevent, a, you know, this kind of like, it. yeah, you know, in order to prevent this kind of murder and treachery and rape from spreading through the whole community, they've got to take strong steps. So it's fine. Really, you should you should you should be glad to have them as neighbors. No, I agree. I mean, it's it really <laughs> it's uh, it's it's got a it's a hard argument to make. Um which is one of the things I want to get to. That is exactly exactly how does Galadriel make this argument. Um, but okay, so the Green Elves come to Galadriel. Why? Why do the Green Elves come to Galadriel? Again, I mean, I know why she's interacting with them, right? I mean, she's like visiting the in-laws, right? So that's fine. Um, but why right, do... So she's been yeah. living in Assyrian for the past few hundred years. Yeah. And she's talking to like her sister-in-law and and she hears about this grievance with the humans and so she kind of takes it upon herself right right okay so she's now visiting the borders of assyria and she wasn't there before and this other green elf community lives over there and showing her around being like look this is the problem this is why we don't like these people right (laughs) this is the issue so she's hearing about it firsthand from the green elves and then decides to play ambassador. Great. No, and that's perfect because that Galadriel would stick her nose into other people's business seems perfectly appropriate. Um, and an indication of, you know, we've, we've already shown, we showed in season four her changing, right? We showed a, uh, you know, a major sort of moral and emotional crisis on Galadriel's part and that she was clearly not the same person at the end of the season that she was at the beginning of the season. So a lot of the like more pure, I'm following in Fanor's footsteps kind of element to her character that we had in season two has been already kind of worn away from her. Right. But, but there's, 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 you know, it's not completely gone, right. There's still, you know, this desire for her to be a unimportant and influential person guiding and leading, you know, to be, she wants to be both Thingol and Melian, right. Ultimately at the end of the day, um, they're both role models in a sense for not that Thingol is an active role model for her exactly, but she wants to rule. She wants to, Oh, excuse me. I'm sorry. Kelleborn is ruling. Everybody knows that. But, um, uh, but anyway, you know, <laughs> she, 
that's that's uh, yeah yeah. So so it 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 seems to fit, but it fits nicely in a way that doesn't make her look really bad, right? I mean, you know, you might kind of think twice about this and say, why is Galadriel butting into this? But it's like good re- for good reasons, right? I mean, she's got a lot to offer, uh, you know, to this situation, um, and and most likely her intervention is going to do much good. Right. So I'm not saying it's questionable. I'm not saying we make her look bad in doing it, but it is a nice little kind of like footnote. You know, notice how Galadriel is still putting herself forward, is still, you know, kind of being uh, being aggressive in this way. It's going to it's still part of her. um, I mean, the very long arc of Galadriel's character development. Right. Which is not going to have its final climax until the Fellowship of the Ring is. You know, we we have a long ways to go on that one. So, you know, we need to uh, still be building that. Um, Good. So anyway, point is, I like that. I like that a lot. Okay. Um, When she talks to the Green Elves, what's their plan? Like, they weren't planning on her playing ambassador, right? They don't necessarily have to have a determined course of action or anything, but, like, what were they... I mean, they have to have been discussing it among themselves. Did they have any ideas, suggestions? Like, were they going to... Were they going to attack them? Were they just going to say, like, okay, we're making a rule. Any human who steps one... Any human and or pig who steps, you know, one foot or trotter across the river is getting an arrow in the face? Like, is that... Were they going to have, like, a really aggressive policy like that? Or were they going to... Were they going to send an embassy? Were they, like, you know, sitting around in a circle saying, like, who's not it to go talk to the humans and ask them to please take their pigs to the other side of the river? Like, do we have any sense of where the Green Elves were? On, on this before she stepped in to their relief? Uh-oh. I think we, we might have lost her. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, no, she's been having some connection difficulties. Um, Nick is reminding us that, of course, we have to remember that... Starting to shoot because, you know, oh. this, is, this is up in this. Hang on. Oh, we lost her there. Had her briefly. We recovered her. I think her. I'm back. There you are. You're back now. Yes. Back. There we go. Sorry about that. Um, yeah, the, the idea is that they are just very frustrated. They're not um, thinking about doing an embassy. Okay. So yeah. they are maybe thinking about shooting people because they're sick of this. Right, right. Uh, so they're they're preparing to take. So basically, it it is pretty clear that the situation is likely to devolve soon and emphatically if Galadriel doesn't step in. And yes. and they were not contemplating an embassy that wasn't on the table. Not that they have tables, but you know, yeah. like in as much as politically no. they have no tables. Uh, so no one they, they didn't elect an executive officer of the week to go. Uh, d- no, okay. Um, that's, that's, the, that's the Green Elves. Um, right. And as Nick is reminding us, you know, the Green Elves are totally cool with murdering non-elves. Like, they have a track record of that uh, from, um, uh, from Season 3. 3, right? Conflict with the Dwarves, Season 3? True. So, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Surprisingly bloodthirsty. 
Yeah, or you know, casual. <laughs> no, no, they don't. They don't go looking for it. But you know, it's uh, it's uh, they have opinions. Um, right. Okay. Good. So she. Now, so Galadriel shows up in the village of the Estelladians, and. Um, uh, how does that go? How do they respond? So she's got to... How much taller is she on average? Is she taller than everybody? I mean, like, well, these are the people who are going to be the House of Hador. They're really tall, generally, right? So she's not going to be, right. like, a foot taller than they are. No, I mean, she could be taller, but not. it's not going to be extreme. Right. The idea is that she is an elf walking into their village, so she's impressive. Yeah. And Kelleborn's with her. I'm not sure how impressive he is, but he's there. <laughs> uh. Walking half a step behind her. Yeah, yeah. Like Prince Philip. Sure, sure. Uh-huh. Um, so their reaction is a little, little bit of awe and yeah. what Fear? is this person doing here? I mean, it's very out of the ordinary. Some of them would have to be probably. I mean, uh, hang on. Another question. Have they had direct interactions with the green? Do they know that the green elves dislike them? Only if they've been shot at before. Well, that's what I'm trying (laughs) to figure out. The green elves haven't talked to them. That's what I'm trying to. Yeah. Um, I mean, it can it can be ramped up as much as you want it to be. Presumably, there's been at least some altercations prior to this. I would think so. I would think so. In, so, like, like that, there would be some people who would be hostile, right? Like family members of folks who have been shot at by elves before, right? But at the same time, it's Goadriel, which, and I, by which I don't just mean that she's Goadriel and awesome and beautiful and all that sort of thing, but also that she's a Noldor and is therefore going to look very, she's, she, she's a Noldor, so she's going to look very different from the Green Elves. They're not going to actually, I mean, even they are going to be able to tell that this is somebody different, right? This is not the same as those f- folks that have been shooting at us from the trees, right? Right. And therefore, they're at least willing to entertain her visit mm-hmm. and see what she's there um, they might, you know, keep their kids indoors or something <laughs> until they know what's really going on. Right. But right. Yeah. But yeah, they're not gonna they're not gonna challenge her and start shooting at her before she walks in. Right. Right. But probably they're not. We did already with Beor, right? We and Finrod. We did the mistaking for a god thing. Is that on the table mm-hmm. again? I mean, is are there going to be... I mean, we can have a variety, right? Like, we could have some people, um, you know, hostile, right? Like, my brother was shot by an elf, and this is another one of those, you know, where he's, you know, you know, and I'm go- going for my hatchet. And But we can have others who are like, is this a goddess? Should I bow? Right? Like, you know, who, who, who might have that kind of reaction? Um... Yeah. Right. As Nick says, Nick says, and she's glowy. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Caliquendi. Right. I mean, it's it's Caliquendi still not long from the Blessed Realm. It's going to be it's going to be visible in some and perceptible 
in multiple ways, I would think. That would disarm the hostility. Yeah, a variety of reactions make sense, ranging from all to hostility, so that we understand that not everyone feels the exact same way. Right, right. That it's a tense situation, um, and she's not just going to be able to waltz in and, like, you know, command these primitives what they should be doing. Um, how's her? What what is her approach? Like, what you know? How does she? How does she comport herself? How does she like? What does she say uh, to the people? Does she? Um, um, is she? Uh, well, hang on. Before we even say that, what is she thinking? Like, what is her attitude towards them before she enters into their camp? She's heard the green elves. She can see that the situation needs defusing, right? So she's going in with the intention of trying to establish peace. But what does she know about humans? I mean, is she going in there being like? These are savage, barbaric Cretans, but I have to somehow talk them around. Um, or is she like, is there a reason why she's willing to see their point of view? Like, what do we think? I'm trying to think of any background. Think, yeah, she has not met humans before. This is her first encounter with humans. Yeah. yeah. I, I think her goal going in is to convince them to stop doing the things that the Green Elves are complaining about. Like uh, a very clear idea that if she can just tell them not to do a handful of things, they won't be getting themselves in trouble anymore. Right. So, right. so that's like her goal is just to convey the stop doing these problematic behaviors. She's right. not terribly impressed by what she sees at first. I, I mean, it's a, an encampment of nomads. Yes. It, yes. It's not exactly a nobler palace. Um, right. So she considers them maybe not going to write them off as savages as quickly as the Green Elves have. But she can see why the Green Elves think that. So like, she's giving them a chance, but she doesn't have a high opinion to start with. And she probably doesn't expect all that much. Um, you know, the only... Um, the only thing that I can think of when I'm trying to think back to like any kind of illusion or reference to, cause of course there's so few Galadriel references that Tolkien wrote back into this material, um, you know, uh, fully. Um, one of the, of course, one of the big references to Galadriel in the Silmarillion, the published Silmarillion, um, is her response to Feanor's speech, which included the bit about the, second race coming and trying to take over things, right? So I think that's what's influencing me to imagine that Goadriel's first assumption might be wary. Now, again, it's Fanor. She doesn't trust Fanor, but I mean, it's 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 a fun parallel, right? That Tolkien doesn't really spell out, but it's kind of a fun parallel how um, she resists Fanor, but she follows in his footsteps, kind of like Fanor resists Melkor, but, you know, does what he says and believes what he taught. Um, so, uh, so I'm, I'm kind of thinking in that same sort of way, right? On the one hand, she rejects fan or on the other hand, that's her data, right? It's the only data that she has. Maybe she's resistant to it. Maybe she's willing to give it the benefit of the doubt. But of course, what the green elves are telling her would seem to confirm it, right? Like here come these, the second, you know, the second, but again, she's not going to be merely 
you know, a confirmed xenophobe, right, when she goes into their camp. It's, 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 it's not like that. But, um, but yeah, a kind of uh, not quite presumption of guilt, expectation of guilt, maybe, or not guilt. That's not quite the right, the right word, but. Um, she's going in with an open mind, but she's also going in assuming these people are doing something wrong and they need to stop doing it. Right. So she's going to listen to their viewpoint but she's assuming that they don't have any defense for these activities. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like, so she's pretty much assuming the green elves have the right of it. And she just needs to convince these people of that. Right. So the whole conversation about capital punishment wasn't something she was expecting to have. Right. And that is a bit of a novel revelation for her, that there's actually a reason they're doing what they're doing. Right. And that impresses her enough to consider these people a little more deeply than she maybe had at first. So maybe her perspective, maybe her approach is not condemnatory, right? It's not disdainful, but it could very well be condescending, right? Like, it could, she could well believe that the most um, generous, positive, patient thing that she could do is come among these savages and teach them, right? Like, I've got to instruct these people clearly, right? Uh, so, ah, learners, come, 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 you know, my little mortal children, and let me explain to you some of the... We don't kill people and hang their bodies from trees. That's, that's a no-no in Beleriand. Let me explain basic morality to you because you obviously need lessons, right? And again, I, I was, I'm exaggerating, but like... It could it could kind of feel like that because it could kind of be like that. I mean, and again, my point is that would be actually a generous move on Galadriel's part. Like she has lots of reasons to believe that she is in a superior moral position to them. Right. Um, even just from the, you know, thinking about it as objectively as she gets, she's had more opportunities than they've had. Right. I mean, they she used to live with man, man, Varda for crying out loud. Right. So it's like good of her, right? Good of her to share what she's taught and to, and to teach what she knows and to help these people. And, and, and obviously it's good. It's, there's a desperate need for it because, you know, these people are, uh, you know, these people are, are, are soiling their environs wherever they go here as the green elves are obviously complaining of. Um, so I'm going to teach them to clean up their act and, and uh, you know, eat with forks and that kind of thing. And then, like, we'll, we'll you know, then we can move forward. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and then, as you say, she's surprised, right? She has this conversation in which she believes she's going to have to explain the rudiments of, like, a moral and ethical code only to find that they have one and that it's not in fact that alien to her like they they are much further along than she thinks than she thinks they are than she thought they would be does that does that kind of dynamic seem to work i'm trying to you see what i'm trying to capture i'm trying to capture the like the tone the tenor of her attitude her assumptions and how this sort of conversation goes I think that's good. And there's two separate scenes there where she first comes into the village and interacts with them initially. And then the second one with the meal and the conversation. Right. So there is 
room to have that initial reaction and then to show a different one. So I, I think we're good. I think that okay. what you're saying works. Okay, good, good. So when she go, by the time she goes to Thingol, she's gained some legitimate respect for them, right? Do we say that her perspective could be expressed by saying, or her change in perspective could be expressed by saying that she now has, she still has reservations, right? She still has concerns. She still is not going to understand. There's still going to be the, the elf-human gap thing going on with Goadriel and the humans. So it's not like she's now at one with the people. But she's at least like willing to give them the benefit of the doubt. She's saying, like, look, these people are not just, like, you know, pointless, amoral savages banging rocks together, right? There's, this is, there's, we should at least hear them out. It, it would be good to talk to them and get to know them better. They could make good neighbors, and- and the whole teaching them thing, mm-hmm. if they're not at the very, very basic level, then, oh, yeah, there's things the elves mm-hmm. could teach them. But yeah, we can work with this. We can work with this. Yeah. yeah. Right. Right. So she still thinks of them as a bit primitive and she still has a superior attitude. Right. But she's gained at least some level of respect. And she has hopes for the future for this group of people. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So when she goes back, we, so we talked about her encounters with Thingol. When she goes back from Thingol to them, what does she say and how does that go? Because on the one hand, she's like, okay, so um, I've, I, I, I respect you and I'm going to treat you with some respect. Um, so here's the thing. Uh, all the rest of the elves around here kind of hate you. And they still do, right? So don't go south or else they'll shoot you in the face. And don't go west because that's not going to go well either. Um, but other than that, everything's fine. <laughs> right? I mean, like, it's, how, do, how does that go? I, I think she would word it a little differently. I think she would <laughs> I was express so. they are they are free to live their lives as they see fit mm-hmm. within the plains of Estelot. Right. But they are forbidden from crossing the river into Assyrian because that land belongs to the Green Elves who will shoot you in the face. And they are forbidden from entering Doria where Thingol is lord. Like, she, she can put boundaries on their land and say that they are free to rule themselves within those boundaries. How would she phrase it? Would she phrase it as, like, I'm handing down some rules to you, just like you know. I'm, 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 I'm establishing some ground rules, and as long as you stay within the ground rules, you guys will be perfectly. You can do whatever you like. Or is she, is she advising them like a friend? You know, is she coming and saying like, you know, I, I, I exhort you very strongly. Don't go south; it won't go well. Um, you can't go. With, you know, try it if you like, but it ain't gonna work to go west. Like the, you know, those trees over there. Don't even try it. I mean, do, do you see what I mean? Like, what's her attitude? I mean, I, get, I, I can't imagine her flipping totally around and being like, I'm on your side, guys. Right? Like, that's, that's not going to be her approach. But at the same time, we know she disagrees with Thingol. She, she thinks Thingol's wrong. She's cast herself as spokesman in this episode. Mm-hmm. So she is the spokesman for the elves right. to the men. Like, I am here among you speaking for all the elves who live. Right. And... Therefore, she's going to convey Thingol's message as right. Thingol's message, not as right. her message. Right. And she'll convey the Green Elf's message as what they think. And she'll feel like she's done a good job because she articulated what these people think to the humans who weren't talking to those groups of people. Right. 
So she, she sees herself as, as a successful ambassador because she's conveyed the warnings appropriately and not let these people just walk into dangerous situations. Like if they keep putting their pigs on the other side of the river, they're, they're, there's going to be more arrows in the future. Yes, yes. But if they keep the pigs on this side of the river, the arrows will disappear. Right, right. So you know, she, she, she feels like she's giving them a good warning. Right, okay. And how are they going to take it? Foreshadowing I mean, the council, Bereg. I imagine. Right, this is Bereg, right? Who is not going to be super happy? Who's going to Who's going to be like? This sounds like reasons to leave, right? You know. So yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes, Bereg is going to take this as elves are condescending jerks who hem us in a narrow place and don't let us live our lives, and who are <laughs> so hostile we when we've done nothing to them. I mean, like they—they're not going to see driving right. their pigs through the land as an, as 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 a as harm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So he's going to say, you know what? We've had enough of Belair. Let's get out of here. But that's fifteen years later. So right. he does sit on this for some time. Yeah. Um, yeah. I was going to say, do you think you think there would be kind of a mix, a, a range of a range of reactions? Some of them, some of them would be more on that end of like, you know, well, this this sucks. Let's get out of here. There'd probably be some hotheads that would want to rebel, but there, there's going to be some that are like, hey, guys, we're lot, we should be glad, grateful for what we got. Could have been a lot worse. We could have been asked to leave. Because, well, um, again, Galadriel's impressive, right? I mean, like, they've yeah. got to know. She's not coming in in armor with a sword, but they've got to take, I mean, in, the intelligent Estelladians are going to look at her and say, these people could mop the floor with us, right? Like, if... Yes. She's telling us that it's fine, that we can be here, and all we have to do is just not go south of the river. Um, let's just say thank you, kind, impressive, slightly scary elvish lady, and live our lives here north of the river and be grateful for that. Um, Especially when the, the places that are being told not to go, as far as they know, are populated by more of these impressive people. Yes. They, perhaps might think, well, we don't want, we, we shouldn't be going over there anyway. Right. Right. Exactly. They're gonna, I mean, yeah, it's, it's hard to imagine many of the humans looking at go, I mean, just the differences between them are going to be pretty extreme. Right. Um, looking at go Andrew and Kelborn and saying like, Oh yeah, we want a piece of that. Like let's, let's, let's attack those people, like the, the nations which they represent, right? That's, that's, that's destined to end well, especially since these are not a militaristic people necessarily, right? I mean, they're not going to be, they're not going to be, I'm not saying they're peaceful, um, but they're not, or are they? I mean, are we imagining them being aggressive? They're the ones who marched into Valerian in, in, in companies, so... They're more militant than the other two groups. Right. They have probably a bit of a proud warrior culture going on, mm -hmm. but they're also very small right. enclaves. Like right. together, they'd add up to something, but this village is not going to take on Doria. Right, right, mm -hmm. right, right. Or even the anarcho syndicalist commune. Um, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, right, right. Okay. But anyway, but Dave, I do agree. 
you know, it's not like we need to get a whole, you know, battery of multiple reactions, but foreshadowing the council, essentially, like showing the different kinds of reactions to the elves, um, setting it up so that, you know, the, 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 the different positions, the different responses to the elves will be fully articulated in episode seven. Um, but to sort of show, you know, lay the groundwork for the variety of those reactions and what those will be, it seems like a um, an obvious place to to kind of take that step, especially since Marie, we're not going straight there, right? You know, it's we, we've got an episode in between, so we want to we want to establish it um, so that when we when we come back to it, we already have a kind of a framework and don't have to build it up again. You know, who are these people and what is their relationship with the elves? We'll 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 already have that um, sort of built in. So, um, yeah. Yeah, no, that's good. Um, okay, okay, I like that. It's getting late, and, and we haven't gotten to... And that's to, the B-plot. And that's the B-plot. So we haven't gotten to the thing that I said at the beginning was going to be really hard to talk about, or really hard to decide on, so that's kind of you, an awkward thing you, to try to tail in at the very end. You, turns out you're right. It was really hard it to was really hard. About. It was really hard to get to. We yeah, exactly. To. Exactly. Um... Yeah, I think we shouldn't try to rush through this. We'll we'll we'll, we'll do the C plot and uh, uh, and and we'll do the C plot next time. <laughs> I, I, I was I, I I had a foreboding which didn't quite rise to a a, a foretelling, but uh, a foreboding that we would not. Actually, I kind of did foretell it, Marie, didn't I? That we wouldn't get all the way through discussing episode five tonight. <laughs> not that that's a challenging or improbable prediction to make, uh, in this podcast. Um, so, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, um, if we, we'll, we'll talk about the Haladin's trip through Nandan Gortheb. Um, we will look more at the frame because we didn't get to the actual frame plot. And unfortunately the frame plot, especially if we sort of restrict ourselves to these first five episodes, it, it's not, I mean, it's, there's not much story. I mean, the story is brief because we get so uh, such small episodes of uh, or scenes of it. So I think we can talk about that as well next time, and still have time to talk about some uh, elf and human things. But let me um, let me move forward to the things that I wanted to think about for next time. Um, I, I do want to get to um, we'll get to as much of this as we can next time. Um, more topics related to the perspectives of elves and men. We've, we've, we've touched on some of this stuff before, but there are some more things, especially things that even just emerged out of today's discussion uh, that I would love to get back to in a more kind of general and theoretical way. Um, the perspectives of elves versus men um, on topics such as nature, change, Faith and trust. And I don't mean faith theologically here. I mean, like, their attitude towards the world, basically, and their attitude towards other people, primarily. Um, though, of course, we can get theological there, too, because there are theological implications of that as well. Like, their larger relationship to the world around them and their understanding of, of, of that world and, and its order and sense. Uh, family. And family ties, things like marriage and children and siblings and and things like that. Um, death, I, I said death and taxes, but that's kind of a joke. Not actually tax, but law, basically death and law. Um, 
uh, and of course, again, so many of these things, right? Uh, nature, change, uh, faith and trust, death, law, all of these things came up in, in, in connection with stuff, stuff from this episode. And I would kind of like to go back and think through that a little bit. And again, you know, in, in the, the, the goal of these other sessions that we're kind of doing in between the episode discussions is to, is to kind of do this sort of broader world building, think through these things, not because we're going to have these discussions come up in the episodes, but that we want to make sure that we're doing the thinking through so that when these things are raised uh, and do come around directly or indirectly, um, we will, uh, uh, we will, um, we will have thought them through and we'll have a sense of how to incorporate those uh, into the stories. So, um, all right. So, two weeks a fortnight from now on an auspicious day we shall meet on thursday march 25th um a uh, a date which we should take note of like samwise samwise takes notes of takes note of it um at 10 p.m eastern time as all 10 ish p.m eastern time as always uh is our next session so thank you everybody for joining us. Uh, this has been a fun discussion as always. Thank you, Dave and Marie, and for everybody who is here live in various uh, in various ways and in various methods. And I, we will see you guys later. I will say as always, thanks for listening and Godspeed.